Gracious Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be able to worship freely, to be able to come to you with all of our concerns and with all of our cares. Lord, we have worshipped with our voices. We have heard the reading of your word. And Lord, for these next few moments, we invite you to continue to tarry with us just a little while longer. Father, please quiet the uh, thoughts of our mind. Please help us to be open to your spirit. And I pray that we will hear just the word from heaven that we need, a word of comfort, a word of challenge, a word that will help us to be more like Christ. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. So the last uh, week, I was on Twitter, and on Twitter, I came across a thread which was absolutely fascinating. It was a thread that this young man, you'll see his uh, picture on the screen, Jono, in the left corner of the screen with the glasses, taking a selfie with his family. He put this picture up, and it's Jono with his sister, his nephew, his father, and his mother. And for the last six months, Jono's family has been keeping up with each other on a WhatsApp group chat. Uh, They did this because after a difficult uh, divorce in the family, they were really not communicating too much. So Johnny put this WhatsApp uh, group together so they could talk and communicate with one another. But Jono would talk to his dad on the phone and his dad would say, hey, Jono, what's going on? What's the latest? And Jono was confused because there's a group uh, chat, and yet dad was asking him for the same updates that he would put up there. And so he was absolutely confused. Then one day, Jono's sister came to him and said, Jono, you need to add dad to the WhatsApp group. And Jono went to the WhatsApp group and realized that although there was someone called Peter, on the group, his father's name. In fact, it was not his father's number. There was a Peter in the group, and the Peter was the plumber, not his father. Here is a screenshot of Jono having sent a message to the group chat, and his mom had read it, and Peter, not his father, had read it. And he realized what had been happening for six months. The plumber had been on the family WhatsApp group chat, listening, um, watching, reading, and never commenting on the group chat. And this story is about a lot of things. It's about uh, broken communication. It's about technology being a double-edged sword. It's about broken family dynamics, wrong assumptions, mistaken identity. Jono, this young man, had started the group because his parents had stopped talking and his family had become fractured. His desire was to bring everybody together to improve communication, particularly with his dad. But his accidental addition of Peter the plumber instead of Peter his dad had the opposite effect. He became frustrated repeating information and his dad became ashamed asking for information from a son who would constantly refer to the group chat. What he wanted was his father. What he got was the plumber. What he wanted was a family. What he got was a stranger. What he wanted 
was communication. What he got was silence. What he wanted was reconciliation. What he got was distance. What he wanted was more clarity. Instead, he got confusion. Jono's desire could never be filled by the imposter in the group chat. He could text him. He could send funny memes. He could put a picture of himself trying on a new suit and say, "Dad, what do you think?" He could ask him for life advice, but only his real father could fulfill the longing he wanted for a closer relationship. It's disappointing, isn't it, to wake up one day and to realize that perhaps the efforts we have been putting forward with our family, with our friends in life, has been mis. Directed to find ourselves climbing the ladders of popularity, climbing the ladders of career advancement, of building social capital, and realizing that the ladder we have been so studiously climbing is propped up against the wrong wall, and we have been putting and misdirecting our effort. Maybe you understand what I mean. You max out your four hundred one k. Uh, you have、uh, a credit score over eight hundred. You go skiing in the winter and swimming in the summer. Life looks good on the outside. You're living the American dream. Your neighbors think that everything is going perfectly for your family, and according to every single commercial, you should be happy. Maybe you're. Amongst your friends, the best student, you have the highest GPA. Unlike some of your friends, you know what your major is going to be. There's no angst for you. In fact, this summer you have been able to line up a sweet internship, and yet something doesn't feel right. You're unhappy. Perhaps you date the prettiest girl in your class. You've got thousands of followers on Instagram. On Snapchat and on TikTok, everybody thinks you're the coolest person. Everyone wants to be your friend, but deep down, you still feel like something is missing. And I think all of us watching today, whether we can ex- understand the experience of a high school student or we can think of a middle-aged person who is doing well, have felt the stinging disappointment. When we realize that the efforts we have put in pursuing joy, in pursuing happiness, in pursuing purpose, has in fact been misdirected and has fallen short, and today we want to talk about God's enduring invitation to all of us—an invitation that started the creation of the world. God's invitation to me and to you is this. To abandon what will ultimately impoverish us and increase our misery, and to choose instead what will ultimately enrich us and increase our joy. This is really the thesis statement for our sermon today: to abandon what will ultimately impoverish us and increase our misery, and to choose instead what will ultimately enrich us and increase our joy. And if you're joining us today at the Walla Walla University Church for the first time, we're in the midst of our winter series, "Running with Horses," and today's sermon is titled "In Pursuit 
of joy. And so this sermon series is located in the book of Jeremiah, who was a 7th century prophet. And although Jeremiah is often known as the wailing prophet, a morose uh, individual who had a terrible life, if you read Jeremiah's uh, story biographically, you see all of a sudden a person who was fully alive to all that God was doing. You see a person who was fully alive in the tradition of faith that allowed him to live a life of adventure, a life of purpose, a life of fulfillment. Jeremiah learned in his life not how to just survive, but actually how to thrive. Jeremiah, unlike me and you, was a prophet. So there is some divergence in how much we can take from Jeremiah's story because he was a prophet and prophets spoke for God. Prophets told people what God expected of them. Prophets uh, expanded the eyesight and the vision of those who were living under the word of God. Prophets would needle, would cajole, would push and would proclaim the reality of the stunning drama that is our existence. Prophets were given by God to rouse people from their sleep and from complacency. Today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1, where God gives Jeremiah a very special message. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord. And then God invokes uh, the broken hearted lament of a spurned lover, builds his case against Israel and talks about the idolatry that Israel has been going through. And so he continues, I remember you, the kindness of your youth the love of your betrothal, where you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And then God continues speaking to Israel, and he talks about his profound dismay and grief that although God had created them, although God had redeemed them, established them, protected them, and provided for Israel, they had abandoned him. They had sought protection purpose, joy, happiness in false gods, in the false gods of the nations that were around them. And in Jeremiah 2 verse 5, we read this, thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me? God is confused. What have I done wrong? That they have gone far from me and have followed idols and have become idolaters. It's this idea when I read this that uh, Israel have, have worshipped God and God has always done right by them. Israel have lived a life where God has provided for them. And yet, for some reason, they have decided willingly to depart from God. It would be uh, like going to the petrol station, going to the pump, and then putting diesel inside of your petrol car. And then as you go down the road and you see that it's billowing black plumes of smoke, knowing that it's, it's going wrong, hearing the engine misfiring, saying, you know what, I'm going to stick with this. 
It's like Jono, if he had actually added Peter the plumber on purpose to the group chat, not Peter, his father. Israel has willingly departed from God. Israel has willingly left Yahweh and they are now worshiping gods that are not gods, that are idols. And God is confused. And so in Jeremiah 2 verse 10, God continues his case against Israel. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and sea. Send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. And then it leads God to exclaim in pained exasperation. Jeremiah 2 uh, 12 to 13, our scripture reading, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate. God is ramping up what he's about to say, says the Lord. And what is God saying? What is the main charge he has against Israel? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn or dug themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My friends, this is an incredible and remarkable indictment against the nation of Israel. Now, cisterns, this is the, this is the word that God uses. They have dug or hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns. Cisterns are just holes in the ground. They're reservoirs for, for storing rainwater. And in ancient times, a cistern uh, would be used. And a cistern, you, you would go and find a place in the earth and you would dig a cistern and it would be pear-shaped with a narrow uh, opening at the top and then it would expand underwater. And you'd go uh, and dig this cistern with a small opening. And imagine with me, that if you are an ancient person in Israel and you're digging a cistern. Now, of course, this is not a cistern, but we're going to imagine that this bucket is the hole. It's the opening of a cistern. And imagine with me that you go out and you start to swing a pick. And you're digging from dawn to dusk. You're excavating the hard, unyielding ground. And while others in your community and in your neighborhood are not digging like you. They're not excavating the, the hard ground. They go out, they play golf, they go swimming. They're with their family, you stay on the job. When they go fishing, you stay on the job. When they take a day off, you work extra and you're digging the ground. You're digging your cistern. You're working through the cold of winter. You're working through the heat of summer that turns your cistern into a kiln. But you keep digging. You keep working. You keep laboring. And after years of strenuous, demanding labor, you find that you have completed the whole. You've completed the whole. You have given the best of your years. And then you step back. And you look at your cistern that you have created and you wait for the rain to pour down into your cistern so that you can experience joy and happiness. 
And then you see that the thing is leaking. There's a crack. There's a flaw in your system. Maybe the stone is too porous. Maybe the lining is weak, but it's leaking. And so you go to your neighbor and you find that your neighbor has the same problem. Your neighbor, who was also studious and built a system, finds that it's leaking because you find out and your neighbor finds out a universal truth that systems, no matter how well constructed, will always leak. And so God, talking to Israel, speaks to them about this act of self-betrayal. This act of leaving God and going to idols, this act which revealed that they had placed their trust, pledged their allegiance and sought satisfaction in something else that wasn't God. But we're smart people. And so after we've gone to our neighbor and we've found that this thing is leaking, we figure, you know what, maybe I just did it wrong. Maybe if I do it again, I will learn how to make a system that doesn't leak. And so we, we take our project back to the drawing board and we draft carefully a new, improved version. We've learned from our mistake. And so this time we'll work harder, we'll work longer, we'll work somewhere else, we will make it work this time. But then reality sets in. It's just a matter of time because our projects work only to a point. And in the end, when we build our systems, the systems of our life, the places in which we hope will give us the ability to capture joy and purpose and happiness, in the end, when we build these systems, we run out of money. We run out of energy, we run out of time and other resources, and every effort becomes utterly meaningless. We come to the cisterns and we find no water, or as Jeremiah says in chapter 14, we return with our vessels empty. We find ourselves in a state of utter despair, of bitterness, a state that Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard called sickness unto death. And so Jeremiah, this man who has been able to find a life full of purpose, a life full of joy, watches as his nation moves away from God and exchanges, willingly exchanges God for idols, willingly watches Israel exchange what will satisfy them for what will cause them misery. Willingly watches Israel find themselves choosing broken cisterns over God, the fountain of life. The psalmist puts it this way, because really all of us want to live a life of joy. I don't know about you, but I, I want to live a life of joy, and I'm sure that you do as well. And it really doesn't matter how old you are or 
your, your culture or where you grew up from. We all want to live lives of joy, of purpose. We all want it. Israel wanted it. And the psalmist tells us how we can do that. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Listen to what the psalmist is telling us today, my friends. That the location of joy is where? In the fullness, excuse me, it's in the presence of God. That at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. So the psalmist understood and Jeremiah proclaims that if we want to live a life where we have the fullness of joy, where we have the pleasures of heaven, we must locate ourselves and find ourselves in the presence of God. And yet, Israel believed the first lie that was ever whispered on earth, the deception that what God offers you for your life is not enough. The deception that God is actually trying to diminish the amount of joy and pleasure that you can have in your life. The lie that came from the Garden of Eden, that God is actually against you rather than being for you. And I know this is true. I think about the swaths of people, the people that I know whose lives have been enveloped by conspiracy theories, that by their very nature are unfalsifiable and cause deep paranoia and unhappiness. And yet, they cling to these uh, deceptive theories, to these conspiracy theories, hoping that if they can understand the next thing, if they can see around the corner, this will give them happiness. I know and you know people who find themselves trapped in cycles of addiction, hoping the next picture or video or substance will fill the elusive satisfaction of their life. But the hit, the picture, the video, the substance, the theory doesn't fill them up because they are all broken systems that cannot satisfy. 20th century English writer C.S. Lewis in his sermons speaks about this human condition. Listen to what he says. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. What are you talking about, C.S. Lewis? God finds my desire too weak. Yeah, that's right. God finds our desires too weak. And, and the argument he makes is a fascinating one because often uh, in church, it can seem sometimes as if God has essentially created the world to clinically take away every single thing in your life that might make you happy. That religion has been constructed to, to diminish your life so that you have to live as a miserable ascetic where you can have nothing that brings any joy. But Lewis says that our desires are not too strong, but they're too weak. We're half-hearted half, half creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And he continues, 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And then listen to this sentence. We are far too easily pleased. I mean, this is an incredible indictment for me. Maybe it is for you as well. And I've never thought often that my chase sometimes, which is misdirected, the effort which is misapplied, is because I'm actually too easily pleased. Often I think, and you might think, actually, I want my joy more than God wants it. I want joy. God is trying to stop me from having joy. And it's a, it's a, it's a fight. It's a tussle. No. God says we're too easily pleased. He has higher thoughts for us. He has grander purposes. He has a more glorious vision for our life than we could have for ourselves. The good news this afternoon, my friends, is that God does not leave us beside our broken systems. Although we may be like Israel and we may have forsook the source of living water, and we may have gone to empty wells to try to slake our thirst, the source, the divine source, rich in mercy, sent the fountain to bring us water. John chapter 4. Imagine with me on a hot Samaritan midday, just outside of Sychar, uh, we meet an experienced builder of broken cisterns who was on her way to Jacob's well. And in her heart, this experienced builder of broken cisterns has five relational cisterns that she tried so hard to make work. But each of these cisterns are now desolate, bone dry, and they don't offer any sustenance. When she arrives at the well, she finds sitting beside the well, the fountain. When she arrives at the well, she finds beside the well, the fountain. The fountain was waiting for her. And he had come to save her from her futile hewing, from her futile digging, from her futile effort. And listen to this conversation. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Jesus is talking about the well. If you drink of it, you will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, a Cartesian well that comes from uh, the ground and springs up, springing up into everlasting life. Now this uh, builder of broken cisterns hears this message from this strange man who shouldn't even be talking to her and she's skeptical. I would be too if I've been chasing joy, happiness, fulfillment, and then someone comes and says, I have the answer. Who are you? So she's skeptical. But then he gives her a taste. And as they talk, she drinks deeply. And for joy, goes and tells all her fellow townspeople that she has found the fountain. 
and many of them drink deeply too. And my friends today, in the woman at the well, we see ourselves. The cisterns that she tried to make may be different than the cisterns that you are trying to cobble together in your own life. But ours are no less futile and empty. And apart from God, everything becomes a dry well. Nothing in this world can channel or store the water we long for the most. Because the truth is everything here eventually breaks and leaks and falls apart. And choosing such broken cisterns over the fountain of living water is the essence of human sin. It's the essence of the brokenness that causes heaven to shudder. But in Jesus' encounter with this woman, we see the heart of God for broken cistern builders like you and like me. In fact, the Bible, although it insists, contrary to others, that life and history is not an an inexorable march from barbarity to civilization, with humans ever progressing from stage to stage until a time when we're perfected. And the Bible actually gives us a contrary picture where we started good and we're moving towards actually disintegration. That like Israel, a time is coming soon when we must reckon with reality before God. That we must face God. That even in the face of such a sobering message and a sobering reality, there is good news. The good news that Jeremiah tried to tell Israel, the good news that Jesus enacted and proclaimed to the woman at the well that afternoon, that the fountain from heaven has come first. And listen carefully, the fountain from heaven has come not to bring judgment, but to seek and to refresh all of us at our dry wells and at our broken cisterns, to end our pursuit of joy which heretofore has been unsuccessful and to tell us that the fountain is here. And I'm so glad this afternoon that regardless of the life that you have lived to this moment, regardless of how much faith you can muster in God, that his invitation endures. It still stands to abandon what will ultimately impoverish us and increase our misery and to choose instead what will ultimately enrich us and increase our joy. I don't know about you, but I want my joy to be increased. Let me end uh, today with a quote. It's a very long quote uh, from Ellen White in the book Steps to Christ. And like C.S. Lewis and like Jeremiah, she walks us carefully through uh, the way God interacts with us and the way that God wants the best for us. Listen to what she says. It is a mistake to entertain the thought that God is pleased to see his children suffer. And I'll pause there because there is somebody who is watching today who needs to hear just that line. You have grown up in a place that makes you feel as if God plots and plans, watches and waits so that if you slip up, he can send a thunderbolt down 
and he can make your life miserable. She tells us that it's a mistake to ever entertain such a thought that God is pleased to see his children suffer. Maybe you've gone through a difficult situation in your life and you wonder, is God the one bringing this to me? Is God doing this on purpose? No, God is never pleased to see his children suffer. Then what does God want? Listen, all heaven is interested in the happiness of humanity. All of heaven is watching. All of heaven is interested in your happiness as a unique creation of God, not as, a, a, as an infinitesimal number of billions of people who are here, but heaven is uniquely engaged and interested in your happiness. Our heavenly father does not close the avenues of joy to any of his creatures. Whew. God is not standing there trying to find ways, my friends, to close any situations in your life or any decisions that you might take that will bring you joy. That is not his MO. The divine requirements call upon us to shun those indulgences that would bring suffering and disappointment. Because remember, Israel willingly went headlong into a life that would bring suffering and disappointment. This is not what God wants for my life or for your life. That would close us to the door of happiness and heaven. She continues. The world's redeemer accepts men as they are, with all their wants, imperfections, and weaknesses. And he will not only cleanse us from sin and grant redemption through his blood, but will satisfy the heart longing of all who consent to wear his yoke, to bear his burden. What does your heart long for today? Because whatever your heart longs for, you find it in the presence of God, in the fullness of his joy, not apart from it, not running away from it, but going closer to it. That is where you will find and find the heart longing. It is his purpose to impart peace and rest to all who come to him for the bread of life. Do you want peace? Do you want rest? Do you want to be able to uh, live a life where, although the future is so unknown, although uh, COVID has turned everything upside down, although you have had uh, work instability, although you're going through a difficult moment in your marriage, although you can't get through to your kids, do you still want to live a life where you can have peace and rest? He requires us to perform only those duties that will lead our steps to heights of bliss to which the disobedient can never attain. And then the last Slide for this quote. The true joyous life of the soul is to have Christ formed within the hope of glory. And so, friends, I don't know what your life has been like in this last week, 
I'm not sure what has been good and what has been challenging. I don't know what the future will bring. But if in these few moments that we have shared together, as we have looked at the ancient story of Jeremiah and as we've looked at an ancient story of the woman at the well, you recognize that you have been living a life where you have actually been building systems that are now leaking, that it's not working, that, it, that no matter how much money, how much influence, how much you have, you still are living a life which has been leaking, and in fact, for some of you, which is now empty. And what you want is joy. What you want is peace. <laughs> what you want is a sense that your life is meaningful. Christ's invitation endures. And Christ invites you wherever you are. If it's a recommitment that you need to make to spend time in his presence, if it's a first-time commitment that you need to make because you have not really been religious and somehow you're watching this today, you don't even know how you're watching this, but you feel a stirring in your soul that I want what she was talking about, then I'm going to invite you just to take a moment, wherever you are, to bow your heads. And I'm going to pray for all of you who might want to make a recommitment or a first-time commitment uh, to pursue a life of joy, which can only be found in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, each of us have broken cisterns in our life. Each of us have places where we have pursued joy and we have come up empty, but we have heard your voice of encouragement today, that you have come down as a fountain to slake our thirst, that you have come to stop our endless hewing, our endless digging and scratching for joy. And Father, you see, although we are separated, the hands that have gone up, the heads that are bowed today, you know the situations that are going through that they are going through, Father. And for the person who wants to make a recommitment, maybe years ago they made a commitment to you when they were in high school, when they were a young adult, but today they want to make a commitment that they will leave their broken cisterns that don't satisfy and come to you, the fountain of water. And perhaps today there is someone who for the first time, uh, who has never made a commitment, but wants to make a commitment today to leave behind what has not been working and to trust. Maybe they only have a tiny bit of faith, but they want to trust that what you're saying is true. I pray that you will be with them, that your presence will come and enfold them. And that together as a community, we might experience the joy of the fountain of life. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.